Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Payback or Pardon, Jesus, Joseph, and the Power of Forgiveness. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 14, 2008. Could you forgive Dr. Mengele, the Nazi angel of death? Or maybe even better, should you forgive someone like him? That question haunted Eva Kaur, who tells her remarkable story in the documentary film called Forgiving Dr. Mengele. Eva and her twin sister Miriam spent ten months in Auschwitz. Along with many other twins, they were separated from their families and subjected to Mengele's horrific medical experiments. After liberation by the Soviets when Eva was 10 years old, then living in Israel for 10 years, she relocated to her Terre Haute, Indiana in 1960, and there she raised a family. Eva returned to Auschwitz for the first time in 1984. She returned for the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the camps in 1995. And on that occasion, she did the unthinkable. She read aloud what she called her personal official declaration of amnesty to Mengele and the Nazis. To be liberated from the Nazis was not enough, she said. She needed to be released from the pain of the past. To extend forgiveness without any prerequisites required of the perpetrators, said Eva, was an act of self-healing. Through the act of forgiving your worst enemy, Eva said that she experienced the feeling of complete freedom from pain. Many Jews were understandably outraged. In an interesting subplot to this film, Eva Kor refused to extend forgiveness or to empathize with the Palestinians when she traveled to Israel. And my Jewish friends tell me that Kors' film has stirred considerable controversy within their communities. The Apostle Peter was an impetuous disciple who deserted Jesus and denied that he even knew him, and so experienced his own deep need for forgiveness. He once asked Jesus, How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Forgiving someone seven times is generous in the extreme. I'm sure that I've never even approximated that standard, but Jesus upped the ante and significantly expanded Peter's arithmetic of forgiveness. Jesus told an outlandish parable about an unmerciful servant who received forgiveness for his own enormous debt but then, instead of extending forgiveness for a tiny debt, he imprisoned his debtor. In the kingdom of God that Jesus announced, he instructs us to forgive not merely seven times, but seventy-seven times, or as it's put in some translations, seventy times seven. The forgiveness that characterizes his kingdom, said Jesus, is beyond calculation or even comprehension. Jesus also said that receiving forgiveness is linked to offering forgiveness. He established a sort of law of proportionality. We can expect 
divine forgiveness in the measure that we extend human forgiveness. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, said Jesus, unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Similarly, in the Lord's Prayer, we ask God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our own sense of the need of forgiveness is the basis upon which we freely forgive others. We forgive because we've been forgiven, and we can only long for ourselves what we lavish upon others. Accepting God's forgiveness might be the easy part. We know, at least cognitively, that God is eager to forgive. He pardons fully and freely. He keeps no record of wrong. But human forgiveness is more complex. Our spiritual and psychological health rests to some extent in the hands of the person we have wronged. Forgiving your own self might be the hardest of all. As a therapist once told me, no matter how much your friend forgives you, it won't make much difference unless you forgive yourself. Somehow, the voices inside your head need to align themselves with the assurances from God and our neighbor that they have forgiven us. Self-imposed guilt that we can't or won't relinquish might be the last bastion of human pride, for it's humbling to admit that we can really be that bad. Extending forgiveness is also different. Here, the numbers get crazy. Jesus asks us to forgive 77 times. Forgiveness on that scale is wildly disproportionate to the sincerity of the repentant sinner, or even the seriousness of their offense. Anyone who seeks serial forgiveness makes us question their motives. But Jesus says it doesn't matter. We still forgive them. Nor should the seriousness of the offense we've suffered compromise the genuineness of our mercy. A straightforward yet radical assurance of forgiveness, as Jesus says, from the heart, can heal complex and painful wrongs we've suffered or committed. Our popular slang captures the power of pardon. Just let it go, we say. Forgiveness of this magnitude finds its basis not only in our own sense of need, but even more sure and certain in the character of God himself as a fundamentally forgiving God. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul writes, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Or in this week's epistle from Romans chapter 14 verse 1 in chapter 15 verse 7, accept one another just as God has accepted you. When we forgive others, we liberate them from their sins and failures. We unshackle them from the chains of anxiety, guilt, and shame. We point them toward a future of hope instead of mire them in a past of regret. We encourage them to hit the reset button and to begin afresh. With forgiveness, we grant our offenders permission to carry on. 
And as Eva Kaur witnessed, when we forgive others, we liberate our very own selves from feelings of victimization, vengeance, and bitterness that will corrode our souls as surely as any wrong we've committed. Some of the bitterest betrayals and deepest hurts we suffer come from our own families. Such was the case in the story of Joseph in this week's lectionary. Joseph's brothers envied their father's favoritism, and so they sold Joseph into slavery and tried to kill him. But history reversed their roles, demoting the brothers to beggars and elevating Joseph to Pharaoh's right hand in Egypt. When their fratricide was exposed and the brothers found themselves as helpless supplicants, they fully expected that it was payback time. But Joseph forgave his brothers. Joseph believed that God had a larger providential purpose for the nation Israel beyond the private wrongs he had suffered. We read in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. At least four different times he reassures his nervous brothers, It was not you who sent me to Egypt, but God. Genesis chapter 45, verses 5, 7, 8, and 9. And so the story concludes. Joseph reassured his brothers and spoke kindly to them. Frederick Luskin, co-founder of Stanford University's Forgiveness Project, says that forgiveness reduces anger, hurt, depression, and stress, and leads to greater feelings of optimism, hope, compassion, and self-confidence. Luskin has conducted numerous workshops and research projects on forgiveness. He's worked with a wide variety of people in corporate, medical, legal, and religious settings. In his book called Forgive for Good, Luskin elucidates what Eva Kaur experienced, what Jesus taught, and what we learn from Joseph. That in forgiving, we become heroes instead of victims in the stories we tell. And now for further reflection. Is there someone you need to forgive? Perhaps yourself? maybe a family member? Consider the consequences of not forgiving. Do you find it harder to extend forgiveness or to receive forgiveness, and why? Can we or should we relate the gospel text of forgiveness in the story of Joseph to the 9-11 anniversary? And finally, a favorite book of mine on the subject is by Lewis Smedes. The title is called Forgive and Forget, Healing the Hurts We Don't Deserve. For books this week, I review Mildred Armstrong Kalish. The title is called Little Heathens, Hard Times and High Spirits on an Iowa Farm During the Great Depression. New York. Bantam Dell, 2007, 292 pages. 
My wife read all nine volumes of the Little House series by Laura Ingalls Wilder to our children. But if that's a stretch for your busy schedule, then Mildred Kalish's bestseller is a fine substitute. Kalish does for the Depression years what Laura Ingalls Wilder did for the American frontier, which is to give a nostalgic but realistic first-person account of a place and time that's now lost to most people. Except for her epilogue, Kalish recounts her early childhood years on her grandparents' 240-acre farm in rural Iowa. As you would expect, her people epitomized the thrift, self-reliance, industry, and independence of a family for whom she says, land was plentiful, but money was almost non-existent. <clears throat> Individual chapters describe farm life, daily chores, a typical Thanksgiving that took two weeks to prepare, church life, wash day, the farm windmill, the outhouse, food, complete with recipes, I might add, and more. As a young girl, Kalish could skin a rabbit, butcher a live chicken, and fry a snapping turtle. But there were limits. She was not allowed to see her uncle wield a sledgehammer to slay a hog or use the butcher's knife to sever its head. Kalish acknowledges that not all people love those years like she does even today. Her sister Avis refuses to talk about it at all. Nor does she gloss over negative aspects of her upbringing. She lived with her mother's parents because when she was about five, her father was banished forever from the family and community for some unspoken misdeed. And his name was, quite literally, never mentioned again in her presence. She doesn't even know when he died. Her people were stern and emotionally reserved. They could be proud and moralistic. Any and all talk about sex education was strictly forbidden. Still, Kalish describes her upbringing as a gift for which she remains grateful, and in her telling, it's easy to see why. A dozen or so original photos enhance the reading. The New York Times named Kalish's memoir as one of the ten best books of 2007. Mildred Armstrong Kalish, Little Heathens, Hard Times and High Spirits on an Iowa Farm During the Great Depression. For film this week, I review Persepolis from the year 2006. Producers and writers Peter Brosens and Jessica Hope Woodworth combine bleak realism and artistic surrealism in this film set on the frigid Mongolian stepping. The teenager Boggy and his family are nomadic herders who are forcibly relocated by the government under the ruse of a plague. They are resettled in a grimy mining town where monster machines gash coal from the earth. Dilapidated high-rises loom out of the barren landscape and steamy smoke belches from every chimney. As a youngster on the Mongolian steppe, Boggy had seizures. A shamanist in the desert interpreted this as a spiritual gift. But in the government hospital, doctors in white coats called it epilepsy. 
In Boggy's clairvoyance and premonitions, time, space, and relations get rearranged in a collision of worldviews that is both literal and deeply figurative. Kadick has earned, earned awards from Sundance, Venice, and Toronto film festivals. The film Kadick is in Mongolian with English subtitles. The film is called Kadick, not as I misspoke Persepolis. And finally for this week, we have a poem, Dulce et Decorum Est. The poem is by Wilfred Owen, who lived from 1893 to 1918. By some accounts, the most famous war poem of World War I, Dulce et Decorum Est, these are the first words of a Latin saying taken from an ode by Horace. The full saying ends the poem, It is sweet and right to die for your country. Actually, on November 4, 1918, Owen was shot and killed near the village of Oars. Armistice bells rang out one week later on November 11th celebrating the end of World War One. Wilfred Owen, Dulce et Decorum Est. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five-nines that dropped behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone was still yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagons that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile incurable sores or innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children, ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum es, pro patria mori. Wilfred Owen, perhaps the most famous war poem of World War I, dulce et decorum est. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 14th, 
2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.